Coping, the mental side of dealing with stress. You're listening to Psychologically Speaking, a podcast for anyone interested in understanding how psychology applies to everyday life. Welcome, I'm your host, Dawn Brinkley, and whether you're a student, an educator, or a lifelong learner, I think you'll find this weekly podcast to be educational as well as entertaining. I'm so excited you're hanging out with me today. Hello everyone. First, I want to apologize for getting this episode a little late, getting it out to you a little late this week. The past week was a challenge for me. I had to come to the realization that I needed to give myself some of that self-compassion that I've talked about in the past and realize that I cannot let negative thoughts consume me and keep me from doing the things that I like to do. I just need to get better with prioritizing and managing my time. And when we can come to the realization of things in our lives that we need to work on, we are so much the better for it. Like we're so better for it. And it was a pretty stressful week for me. So I thought it would be a good idea to talk about stress this week in some ways that psychology tells us some coping mechanisms that psychology says that we often use in trying to manage or alleviate stress. I also think it's appropriate considering the things that are going on in the world today. There's still so much contention, for example, like between that, whether do I want to be vaccinated or do I not want to be vaccinated? It's it's my right, my body to do with what I please. And that can still be a source of contention, anxiety, and stress for a lot of us. And so I thought it would be great to talk a bit about stress and how to alleviate some of that stress. Although I have talked about stress before, today you'll notice it's in a slightly different context. Hopefully it'll be helpful to you. And again, I am glad that I was able to finally get this episode out. As a psychologist and psychology enthusiast, it's my job to dispel some of the myths people often have about psychology. As a true psychology nerd, I am defending my favorite subject matter against all false claims. Today's psychology myth or science topic, pessimists handle stress better because they anticipate bad things will happen. Do you think that if I have that type of outlook, a pessimistic outlook, it will affect me less? Or will it affect me more? You'll have to stick around to find out. Now let's dive into this week's episode. Imagine being 14-year-old Elizabeth Smart, who experienced a night she will never forget. On June 5, 2002, as she was sleeping in her bedroom next to her 9-year-old sister, Elizabeth Smart awakened to a voice. The voice said to her, I have a knife to your neck. Don't make a sound. Get out of bed and come with me, or I will kill you and your family. 
Fearing for her life and that of her family, Elizabeth left with her kidnapper, leaving her little sister Mary Catherine terrified and afraid. Elizabeth's abductor was Brian David Mitchell, a hired hand who broke into the home through an open window. Brian and his wife held Elizabeth captive for nine months. During those nine months, Brian repeatedly raped Elizabeth and threatened to kill her and her family. Brian, his wife, and Elizabeth were out for a walk one day when a couple recognized them from an appearance on the TV show, America's Most Wanted. Brian and his wife were caught and arrested and Elizabeth was returned to her family. Although she endured life-threatening stressors for months that undoubtedly left an indelible impression, Elizabeth is now safe and sound, happily married, and working as an activist. Her story is a story of resilience and survival, a story of stress and health that teaches us we can bounce back from even the most stressful events. For there is nothing either good nor bad, but thinking makes it so. This quote from Shakespeare's Hamlet is referring to moral relativism. However, if we think about it, psychology tells us that this can also apply to how we experience stress in our lives. Most of the harmful stress we experience is thought to exist in our minds. This is not to say that horrible events don't happen to us. What happened to Elizabeth was certainly horrible. But it is to say that it's more so bad things are exacerbated or the stressful events we experience are made even more harmful by the way we cope with those stressful situations or by the way we think about those situations. Our bodies and our minds are deeply connected. Healthy individuals are sometimes affected by illness. Therefore, it's important to think about the ways the body may influence the mind. We should also focus on how health and illness may affect our psychological experiences, cognitive abilities, stress, and coping. This is where the field of health psychology comes to mind. Health psychology focuses on not only behavioral aspects associated with our health, it also looks at our psychological experiences of illness. Very few of us will ever have to endure the type of stress that Elizabeth Smart went through. But stressors are unavoidable and can be challenging to manage. Stressors are defined as events or chronic pressures that tend to threaten our well-being and stress is our response to those stressors. So for example, in Elizabeth's case, the stressor was the event of being kidnapped and the stress she experienced from that was her response to being held captive for nine whole months by someone whom she probably trusted because he was a known, a person that the family dealt with in the past. Stressful events can be positive or negative. Health psychologists suggest that how we feel physically might influence how we think about 
stressful situations. So our cognitive appraisals of stressful situations. Because stressors are unavoidable and chronic stressors are associated with things like heart disease, depression, and a lowered immune system or lowered immunity, it's important that we learn to cope with stress in helpful ways. Dealing with stress is alleviating it with emotional, cognitive, or behavioral methods. Cognitive methods involve our appraisals. This is where how we think about the situation can and does affect us. Whether you believe you have the resources to manage your stressor effectively can in turn affect the outcome from those stressors or how you experience those stressors. What are two ways that people try to cope with stress? Well, Susan Folkman and Richard Lazarus grouped coping strategies into two general categories. The categories of problem-focused coping and emotion-focused coping. Problem-focused coping involves dealing with your stressors head-on dealing with them directly. If you have a problem with a family member, going to that family member directly and addressing the problem that you have. Problem-focused coping is thought to be a healthy form of coping and is also referred to as rational coping. The other type of coping or the other category of coping is emotion-focused coping. We tend to use emotion-focused coping as a strategy when we feel we cannot change a situation. Comparing the two then, problem-focused coping, you would use that if you feel like you are in control of the situation. Again, I have a problem with a family member. I, I can control this. I am going to go directly to that family member and address the problem. If you feel like, if you're in a situation where you feel like you have no control, then you'd use emotion-focused coping as a strategy. You might react in the following ways. You might avoid the source of your stress. So rather than going to the family member, you might just avoid that family member altogether, hoping the situation will die down and it's going to go away. All the time you're ruminating on it, though, hoping things will get better as opposed to addressing them rationalizing what has happened to you so you'll try to make sense of what has happened. Or you could deny the problem altogether and laugh it off. Like, I, okay, we had this problem, but you know what? I'm not even going to worry about it. I'm just going to let it, it doesn't exist. Like what it may have happened, but I'm not going to acknowledge that it happened. Another coping mechanism addressed in psychology is repressive coping. Repressive coping is the tendency to avoid feelings, thoughts, or situations that remind you of a stressor and maintaining an artificially optimistic viewpoint. It's similar to, or it's a style, you could say it's a style of emotion-focused coping, whereas emotion-focused coping involves denying the problem, laughing it off, Repressors deliberately ignore their problem. The idea being that repressors are trying to avoid anxiety. They don't want to be reminded of the situation. They don't want to become anxious about the stressor. In Elizabeth Smart's case, she often used the strategy of repressive coping rather than focus on the details of her experience or what she had gone through 
when she was conducting interviews, she would focus on the things that were going on then in her life. So current happenings, living in the now is she would talk about things that were going on right then as opposed to what had happened to her during that time. And that was her way of dealing with the stressful situation she'd experienced. Emotion-focused coping has its benefits in the short term, but problem-focused coping tends to be related to lasting results. Not to say that there's a better way to cope. Really, it's all about anything else we experience in life, doing what works for you. It is just research suggests, psychologists suggest that a healthier form of coping is the problem-focused coping because it'll you'll end up faring better in the long run as opposed to the emotion-focused coping. The most constructive emotion-focused coping strategy is positive reappraisal or re reframing. So even though it's, it's not a long-term benefit, emotion-focused coping does have its use and it has its pros. And that specifically if, or particularly if it's a positive reappraisal or positive reframing. So rather than saying, I lost my job, bummer, or I had to drop this class, bummer, we might look at it as I lost my job, but you know what? I will have more time to focus on Finding a better job, especially if you weren't really happy with that job in the first place. It's all about reframing, flipping that situation on its head, turning a negative experience into a positive experience, not being unrealistic about it, but looking at it in a more positive, optimistic manner, as opposed to being negative and ruminating on the situation, thinking about it over and over again. What's done is done. So why continue to focus on it? Some people rely on their religious beliefs or spirituality to help them cope in stressful situations. That is something I had to turn to last week. Again, I so wanted to get this episode out on time for you guys, but I was so in my head and I had to calm myself down. I had to refocus. I had to turn inward and turn to my spiritual beliefs to just help me get grounded and refocused and get started again and get get going again and remember why I decided that I wanted to do this in the first place and so I'm, I'm so so glad that I did that positive religious coping includes seeking comfort or reassurance in prayer reflection and contemplation some people turn to their religious community some also believe that their personal experience is spiritually meaningful. I am definitely one of those people. I feel like I everything that happens happens for a reason. For every behavior, for every action, there's a reaction. For every behavior, you know, there's an outcome. I, I am so, so believing of that. And everything that happens to me was meant to happen to me for a reason. I know a lot of people don't believe that, but that, that is my belief. And so with that, I try to take something away from 
everything that happens to me. I don't look at things as a waste of time. I look into each situation. I look inward after each situation. And that helps me to cope, especially when I'm dealing with stressful situations. Research suggests that positive religious coping is associated with lower levels of stress and anxiety, improved mental health, and physical health, and it enhances well-being. Religious beliefs can also have adverse outcomes, though, and I think this is where religion or spirituality practices get a bad rap. People feel like you have something else to blame your faults on. You have something else to blame your bad outcomes and so they feel like you're copping out i've heard students say well i'm not a religious or spiritual person or i don't turn to those types of things because i'm in control of my situation i don't want to look for something else that i can blame when something happens to me it's not about blame it's about support but when it does turn to blame is when religious can religious beliefs can have negative or adverse outcomes people who engage in this type of negative religious coping tend to experience increased distress poorer health and decreased well-being because they look at things such as I can't believe why, if they believe in God, I can't believe God, why God is doing this to me, why God is punishing me. They look at it as, as a punishment and that tends to affect them negatively. Several studies do show though that religious coping offers a sense of control or certainty during stressful life events or circumstances. I am of the adage that faith that cannot be tested is faith that cannot be trusted. So whatever higher power you tend to believe in, wherever your faith lies, you will be tested at some point. And if if you can't be tested, it can't be trusted. So what what's the point? Yes, I said it. <laughs> what's the point? What about individual factors? So we talked about problem-focused coping emotion-focused coping, repressive coping. I talked about how um, positive emotion-focused coping, especially from a religious or spiritual perspective, tends to have positive outcomes. But what about individual factors that might influence how we respond to stress? When we have a sense of control, the impact of stressors is reduced. So if we have what is known as an internal locus of control. That means that we feel like basically we are in control of the things that happen around us. We're more likely to handle stressors better. Feelings of control are related to both physical and psychological benefits, so those things are good for us. If we have an external locus of control, meaning we feel like no matter what we do in a situation, our outcome is still going to be the same or bad or it'll never change. An example of this would be if you're a, if you happen to be a student, I, I keep coming back to that because that that is what I do. I'm sorry, but I feel like it's applicable to other areas of life as well. If you are a student and you failed an exam, will you study more or study less? Well, that depends on how you feel your your sense of control if you feel like oh i just need to study harder than i did or maybe i need to practice some different study techniques you're more likely to do that however if you feel like oh this professor is just a 
or whatever. <laughs> if you feel like no matter what you do, the professor is just a jerk. No matter how hard you study, you're never going to pass because the exams are too hard. You have an external locus of control and you probably will not try any harder because you don't expect things to change. Martin Seligman is a well-known positive psychology researcher. So things like control, um, how we feel in certain situations, positive psychologists look at that. They He suggested that how we explain our failures. So they look at things like what controls whether we develop a helplessness attitude, which can come from you feeling like no matter what you do, you cannot change your situation. His theory of learned helplessness, like that is at the root of his Martin Seligman's theory of learned helplessness. He suggested that how we explain our failures explains the difference between people who persist in the face of failure and those who give up. So again, his explanation is the essence of his learned helplessness theory. That is a pretty fascinating theory. If you've never looked into that theory before, I suggest that you take a look at it. It might help you to understand yourself better. It might help you to understand others better, especially people that have a self-defeating attitude. It, it might help you to understand them or yourself better. People with an optimistic explanatory style use external, unstable, and specific explanations for negative things that happen to them. People with a pessimistic explanatory style use internal, stable, and global reasons for negative happenings. If you were listening to me, your brain is probably churning or you might have had to rewind or go, go back and you're thinking, but wait, you just said, if I have an internal locus of control, I'm better off because my perceived control is all about, I can control this. And if I have an external locus of control, I am worse off because I feel like nothing I can do will change my situation. But didn't you just say the opposite with this optimistic versus pessimistic explanatory style? Listen again. Optimistic explanatory style is uses external, unstable, and specific explanations for negative things that happen to them. When you think about it, this person is being optimistic because they are explaining things that happen to them on outside occurrences. So for example, if you ask someone out and they tell you, oh, I can't make it this week, you will not, if you have an optimistic explanatory style, you will not immediately say, oh, that person doesn't like me. They must really be busy is what your thought might be, or is more likely to be if you're optimistic. If they're busy, that means they have something else going on and it has nothing to do with you. But if you have a pessimistic explanatory style, your gut instinct is going to immediately be, oh, Brian doesn't like me. That's why he doesn't want to hang out with me. There's something about me that I'll never be able to change or something about me that he doesn't like and I can't fix it and he'll never want to go out with me. So does that make sense now? Your perceived sense of control has to do with the internal 
versus external locus of control. Whereas when you're explaining things, explaining why something bad happened, you would use something on the out, something outside of you. Though that's a thing you have no control over versus something on the inside of you which is something that you definitely can control. So an optimistic person looks outward for failures and negative things. They don't give excuses. They just know, oh, hey, this has nothing to do with me. Whereas a pessimistic person looks inward and looks for something flawed within them. And that's why, that's how they explain negative things. I hope that I hope that makes sense. I hope I've done a good job at explaining that. With that, talking about optimistic versus pessimistic explanatory styles, that brings us to today's psychology myth or science topic. Pessimists are more likely to handle stress better because they expect bad things to happen. I hope you've come to the conclusion now and you have the correct answer. The answer being that this is a myth. This is false. Chronic negative emotions are related to the development of chronic diseases. Pessimistic people tend to experience much more stress than optimistic people. A pessimistic explanatory attitude undermines health. Guys, ladies, gentlemen, I'm a Southerner. I use the term guys inclusively. Well, to be honest, I don't know if that has anything to do with being in the South. But anyway, I don't mean any harm about it or I don't mean any harm by it. So people get out of that negative pessimistic mindset that saboteur is harming you. So run away from it. Get away from it. It's okay to have a little self-doubt. I mean, we all do, but don't don't let that work on not letting that become a permanent part of your existence, a permanent part of your psyche. It it does you no good. Consider this. Coping styles are about mind management. Stressful events are magnified in the mind. Our cognitive appraisals and perceptions have the power to help us overcome the adverse effects of stress and improve our well-being. Effective coping can minimize the impact of even the most intense stressors. Just ask Elizabeth Smart. That concludes this episode of Psychologically Speaking. Be sure to visit my blog at drbemindful.com for some useful self-help tips and highlights of the podcast episode. Let me stop right there. I am so, so sorry. Again, life has overtaken me and I am so behind right now, but I am going to use this holiday weekend to catch up, I promise. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you all for sending me emails, um, Facebook messages. Hi, Riley. I um. I just love it. I love the interaction. I love the feedback. I love the communication. And so I really appreciate it. Invite a friend to listen. I welcome you to do that. I welcome your suggestions and feedback at dawnb at drbemindful.com. Or you can post them using the contact me link on the blog. I hope you all have a great long weekend that's coming up. And I am going to do my best to get that 
extra episode that's actually due out this week out for you. I've been looking at some things that are a little questionable in psychology. It has to do with uh, chakras and healing, especially after the week I had last week. I was really reading and studying up on chakras and I might have that as a little um, hippy-dippy psychology episode for this week the real episode no no offense to anybody for saying hippie dippy but um it, it's really a joke on my part my family says that i'm a hippie so it's really a personal personal thing but as always thanks for hanging out with me today